with me in your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 17. We're going to be picking up the reading in verse 16. But just to to set the context, back in verse 14, it tells us, uh, we're going to kind of jump into the middle of the story, but verse uh, 14, Paul gets sent away from Berea because of the threat of persecution, and uh, he's sent off to Athens. Paul and uh, Silas and Timothy remain behind, and uh, Paul, after he gets to Athens, sends word back to Silas and Timothy that they would come join him. And then we pick up the reading. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. George Carlin, the comedian, once said, the God excuse, the last refuge of a man with no answers and no argument. Apparently he was an atheist. What he's saying there is that if you start 
believing in God or throwing God out there, then, then you really don't have any answers. You're just putting your faith in something that you can't really explain uh, and you have really uh, no argument to make because you're just giving up and believing in God. Well, many people feel that way about Christianity today. Christians are seen as unthinking, simple-minded folk who blindly follow the teachings of an out-of-date religion. Our society wants us to keep our simple-minded faith to ourselves, and they get insulted if we speak about Jesus and feel that we are being and they feel that we're being condescending when we seek to convert people to our way of thinking. Now, the, this attitude is prevalent in our society and becoming more so, it seems like. And the passage before us today speaks to this attitude as Paul takes Jesus and the resurrection from the synagogue where he reasoned with the Jews and devout persons there and he took it into the marketplace in Athens to those who happened to be there. Now, the marketplace was the public square. It was the center of public life. It was the place where people gathered to conduct their business, to buy things, to get the news, to uh, see people and hear about things, what was going on in the world and what were people thinking. You'll notice that verse 21 states, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That's, where you, that's why you went to the marketplace. You could hear something new. What's, what's the latest? What were people thinking? The marketplace was where ideas were shared. And we see the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers uh, there. They were certainly debating with one another. These were kind of the leading thoughts of the pagan world, leading thinkers of the pagan world of that day. And then Paul, uh, he takes Jesus there into the marketplace, into the public square. Jesus, the resurrection, and the implications of it certainly. He doesn't shy away from going right into that public square uh, where, the, where the world kind of intersects there in Athens, and he begins to, to proclaim Jesus there. And of course, we today are called to do the same, to take Jesus from out of the church into the public square, into the marketplace, to the places where we work and live, where we interact with other people. We've been given the Great Commission. We're called to be witnesses uh, in the world, and we're, we're uh, labeled by Paul as ambassadors for Christ in the world, sharing a message of reconciliation. We can learn some things from Paul here about what it means to take Jesus into our marketplace? How do we take Jesus with us into our uh, workplace, into our family, out from Sunday morning to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday as well? Now, there are three questions I want to ask and address today. First, what goes into the marketplace? And then secondly, why was it able to go into the marketplace? And then third, thirdly, why did it go into the marketplace? So first of all, what goes into the marketplace? What, what does Paul take there? Verse, uh, verse 18 
indicates that he was sharing the good news about Jesus and the resurrection, what we call the gospel. He didn't simply stand on the street corner and, and uh, proclaim it. He may, may have done that some, but the, the verbs that are used there uh, mean that he dialogued with the people about it. He got into conversations with people about it. It was not just a monologue where he stood up and gave a speech, but a dialogue where he engaged people and they, uh, they, they talked back and forth. Uh, when it says that he had a conversation with the, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, the word conversation literally means to throw with. You know, if you ever played a, a pitch with uh, your, your son or your dad, you know, you throw the ball back and forth. Uh, or played tennis, then you hit the ball back and forth. You're conversing with one another, and that's the picture you get here. Paul was, they were batting the ball back and forth, sharing ideas with one another, talking through things. It's really a, a important for us to understand that in, in our day and time. You know, we, we tend to go out, and the, a lot of the old patterns of evangelism were to monologue, to just go and share it out there, just lay it out there. It's important, I think, especially as you engage an increasingly pagan, secular culture, that we need to dialogue, to talk things through, to interact with people and get to know them and, and to be able to uh, interact and, and have it more of a dialogue than monologue. So that's what Paul did in this context. You notice in the synagogue, when he was preaching to religious people, there was more of an opportunity for him to stand up and, and lay the teaching out there without maybe as much dialogue. But in the marketplace, we need to be able to speak, but also to listen, and then to go back and forth. So he's debating back and forth with the, with the philosophers that are there and anyone else, I'm sure, who will hear him. And he wins a hearing at uh, the Areopagus, it says. Now, uh, the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, that's what Areopagus actually means. Uh, Mars Hill is a hill near the Acropolis. Now, I've had the privilege of being able to go to Athens and go to the Acropolis. The Acropolis is way up on the, kind of the top of the hill, uh, way up there, and that's where the Parthenon is and some of these great Greeks, uh, Greek structures that you have from history. It's all still standing there. Several temples are, are there. Uh, in the ruins, and, and when we were there, they were actually beginning to work on the Parthenon to do some restoration on it, uh, probably, well, ten years ago now. Uh, but uh, down below the, uh, the Acropolis, this high, lifted-up hill upon which the Parthenon sit and other temples, was the marketplace below, and, and Mars Hill was near there. And, and that's where, in ancient times, a council had met. Now, once the Romans had moved in and taken over, it, it became the court supervising morals, education, and religion. So they were bringing Paul to the very place where uh, you heard these things, religious things. What are these ideas? We want to hear more about it. And he probably met in something called the Royal Portico in the marketplace below the Acropolis. Now, if we examine his speech there and what he actually said to them, we find that he is not only speaking about Jesus and the resurrection, but he's also talking about uh, right thinking about God. This is kind of his starting point, thinking about God in the world. He begins his sermon by pointing out 
that they were very religious. You see that verse 22 there, so and on, uh, his speech to the Areopagus. He says, I noticed that you're very religious. I've been walking around town uh, while I've gotten here, waiting for my friends to show up, and I'm doing a little sightseeing, which undoubtedly he was. There were sightseeing guides for Athens that are from that era that people could go around and, and view all these magnificent structures. So Paul notices all these different temples, all these idols, not just on the Acropolis, but in the marketplace as well. And he makes the observation, I see that you are very religious. Now the word here for religious or pious, which it can be also translated, is a word that was formed by combining two words. The verb to fear, or to be in awe of, or to respect something, along with a general term meaning lesser gods or spirits. Put them together, the fear of these lesser gods, to be religious or pious. The word religious here does not use the word that one used when referring to God, but these lesser gods. And I think this was a, a carefully chosen word that Paul uses here. Basically, he's saying, I see that you have respect for these lesser deities, all these different idols and statues you have around town. But now I want to tell you about the real God, the one true creator God. And that's what he proceeds to do. Now, Paul's beginning point is very important. He starts with their innate knowledge of God. And that's important to note. We talked about it a little bit when we sang, uh, creation sings the Father's song. Not only does creation uh, testify to the fact that there's a God, uh, but, but mankind has uh, this innate knowledge. We uh, have been stamped with the image of God. That image has been distorted due to sin coming into the world, but a remnant of it remains. And Paul is appealing to that. Romans 1 discusses this, where it says... For what can be known about God is plain to them. These are the people who turn away from God, the, the true God. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. These Epicureans and Stoics certainly claimed to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See, mankind, Paul says, has a tendency to suppress the truth about God, to push it down, to push it away. And that's how the Bible describes humanity. And, and that is his starting point. He says, I know, uh, in, I think probably in his mind, he knows that, there is, uh, that these people have an innate knowledge of God. You can see it, that they're religious. They're, they're, but they've misplaced their, their piety. They're placing it on created things rather than on the Creator. And what is true then is true today. Do we not see it all around us that people are placing value and are actually worshiping uh, as their supreme good created things rather than the creator. Look at, look at around us, what people are investing their, their time, their money, 
and their energy to. You can look at those three things in your life to know what is your, what is your God. You know, we might come to church on a weekly basis, but still be idolaters. We've talked about it many times uh, here. We can, we can uh, live our lives with a, the name of Christian, but actually be idolaters by putting as first place, most important in our lives, created things, even good things, of higher importance than God. Paul sees that that's what's going on here. You know, if we look around us in our culture, you know, what do we as a culture spend our money on? Where do we build temples? You know, we don't have a Parthenon. Actually, there is one in Nashville, I believe, a replica uh, there in, in, uh, in Nashville. But uh, nobody's going there to worship that I'm aware of. I'm sure some pagans have probably shown up and worship there. But, you know, what are the big monuments that we have? You think about how much money do we spend on sports arenas and stadiums. I mean, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars. You could really probably wipe out the national debt and, and end hunger in the United States with all the money that we spend on sports. We worship athletes, people to play a game. That's just one example. Uh, we worship uh, actors and actresses. We worship fame. We worship material possessions. We think, oh, if I just had that, then my life would be great. That's worship. That's saying, that is my greatest good. That is the thing that's going to satisfy me. Well, the, the problem is that when we try to get satisfaction from created things, we always uh, are unsatisfied. They, those things can never satisfy because they're not eternal things. They're temporary things. They, they always fall short and leave us wanting more, pursuing more. We're always grasping and, and seeking and trying to get there, and we never arrive. Only God can satisfy. That's what, that's what Paul's getting at. He says, I see that you're religious, but you're misplacing your, your zeal. You're putting it on created things rather than the Creator. As Augustine said, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in Him. Never satisfied until we turn to the only one who can satisfy. See, God is sending out a divine call. Human who answer the call have a heavenly destiny. We were created for that. We were made in His image, and sin has marred that image, as I said before, but the trace remains, and we know deep down there's something more, but we look for it in creation rather than to the Creator. Paul even quotes their own poets. He quotes three different uh, three different ancient poets instead of quoting scripture. Of course, these people are not familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. So he doesn't quote that to them. He quotes their own poets and says, look, see, even they talked about this innate knowledge of God. They said things like, uh, we're God's offspring, meaning we're made in the image of God. See, Paul's pointing to that. And that sentiment from Romans 1 says, look, you know that there's a God, you suppress the truth in unrighteousness, or these people suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and they're without excuse because they know that there's a God, they just push it away. And that's the sentiment that he echoes in verse 30. Yes, you've worshipped created things rather than creator. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he's commanding all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
God is, through his representatives, he is revealing the truth to the world. And there will be a day when each one of us will have to give an account before him. Have we responded appropriately to our Creator? Have we repented of our sins and turned to him? Are we seeking our our greatest good from him? Or are we looking at, uh, at created things to satisfy us? This is the life and death message that Paul took into the marketplace. And it's the one that we should take into the marketplace as well. We must keep it ourselves, this message of the gospel, but we must not keep it to ourselves. And that's what Paul does. He kept the gospel, he, he embraced it in his life, but he also took it out to the, to the marketplace, to the public sphere. Now, why was it able to go into the marketplace? That was the long point, now the shorter two points. First, why was it able to go to the marketplace? Well, basically because it is comprehensive truth for all of life. When a person embraces Christianity, it doesn't just mean that he begins going to church on Sunday. That's, that's part of it, but it's comprehensive. It affects every area of life. It gives you a comprehensive way to view the entire world. In fact, uh, it's impossible, as people want to say, you know, keep your religion to yourself. It's impossible to do that. It's impossible for a Christian to do that. It's impossible for any religion to do that. You can't just keep it to yourself because it becomes part of who you are, your identity, and you live in the world, and it, you, you're affected by it. And when someone says, keep your religion to yourself, they're misunderstanding that fact. And in fact, when they say, keep your religion to yourself, they're actually not keeping their religion to themselves because they're actually imposing on you some rules that spring from their worldview, a very specific Western secular way of thinking. They're espousing in that and saying, you should embrace my way of thinking and stop telling me to embrace your way of thinking. So they're not doing anything different than what we would do. It's better to be like the Athenians and Paul, to dialogue. Let's talk about these things. If Christianity is true, it will win the day. And I believe it's true. And when you uh, interact with people, if it's truth and you say it in love and graciously, yes, some people will reject it. Some people rejected Paul. I'm sure he gave a great presentation at the Areopagus. But some people are just not going to believe it because their eyes have not been opened by the Spirit. That's okay. Paul faithfully put it out there. And it was able to stand in in this very center of thinking for the world, Athens. Paul took it there and it stood. The people didn't go... You know, there were some people who said, what does this babbler have to say? What does this... You know, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a word that's used for uh, hucksters, people who come in and they're trying to sell you something. What's he trying to sell? Uh, and his case was so compelling that they took him to the highest court to hear him out. So see, Christianity is not simple-minded. It's not unintelligent. The greatest thinkers in the world at the time were in Athens, and they wanted to hear about it because it was compelling. And the world that we live in, yes, there will be some people who reject it, But it is compelling truth because it's true. It is the truth. Now, so that is the second one. I'll stop there. Why was it able to go in the marketplace? Because it's truth. Now, finally, why did it go into the marketplace? Simply put, Paul walked around and he was provoked by the idolatry he saw. Verse 16 tells us, His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. It it means he was upset. It It was a righteous indignation. 
he reacted strongly to what he saw going on there. It upset him so deeply. So he went to them with the truth. He reasoned with them, uh, with them concerning the truth. Now see, today people would just label him as a hater. Paul's a hater. He wants to change uh, you know, the, the poor pagans. Why can't they just live the way they want to live? Why does Paul have to interfere? Well, wouldn't you want someone to tell you if your house was on fire, that your life was in danger? And that's what Paul's doing. Paul is driven by, number one, a deep love for God. He cares for God's honor. When people misplace their worship, they should be worshiping the Creator, and they're worshiping created things. That takes glory away from God. So he's concerned for God's honor, but he loves people. He cares enough as he sees the folly of their way. He cares enough to take the truth to this lost and dying and, and deeply deceived world. That's why he takes it there. He's provoked. He's upset about it. And he cares. And he's simply a reflection of Christ, isn't he? Paul cares about people, so he goes out into the public sphere with the word of God. In Christ, the very word of God became flesh and came to earth, seeking us out. And we wandered away. We had worshipped created things. We had worshipped ourselves over God as humanity. And God did not leave us there, but he sought us out. He became a man, came flesh, and he dwelt among us. Though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did something for our sin problem. He came and he, he dealt with it. Paul is doing something about their problem. He's sharing this truth about what Christ has done for them. He's taking it out into the street. And he explains it in 2 Corinthians 5. The love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ compels us. That's why we go and share about Christ. It's the love that we have for Christ and his honor and for other people. The love Christ has for other people is flowing through us. He had encountered the love of Christ himself and he wanted to share it with others. What about you today? What about me? Do we love Christ? Are we compelled by the love of Christ to take this message of salvation to a lost and dying world? And when people tell us to keep it to ourselves... We think, okay, I should just mind my own business. I think we shouldn't. And I think we should be compelled to obey Christ when he tells us to be his ambassadors, to, go, to be his witnesses, to, to go and make disciples of all nations. We must do that because it's, it's a world that's, that's in error and lost and dying without it. So may the Lord give us grace to not only embrace the truth ourselves, to keep the gospel ourselves, but not keep it to ourselves. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragement that this gives us, that your truth can stand in the world, the world of ideas, because it is truth. Lord, we pray that not only, uh, well, first of all, Lord, we pray that we would embrace the truth, that we would put our faith in you, that we would stop our tendency to worship created things rather than you, the creator, and Lord, we pray that we would be so gripped by this good news that we would want to share it with others. 
so that you might build up your church, that you might receive more glory from more voices uh, uh, pledging their love to you, singing your praises. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.